Bonjour à tous. Good morning, everyone. Arbitrage avant mardi against Her Majesty the Queen. Pour the appellant, arbitrage avant mardi, Maître Isabelle Sherman, Maître Julius Gray, Maître Francis Villeneuve-Ménard, Maître Rose-Mélanie Edrivo. For the intervener, Canadian Association of Naturopathic Doctors, Mr. Benjamin Grant, uh, Marion Sanderlands, and David Wilson. For the intervenant, association. For the intervener, uh, l'Association de médecine naturopathique du Québec et al. Giuseppe Battista. Lawyers Association, Anil Kapoor, and Dana C. Ashtemichuk. For the intervener, the Association of Defense Lawyers of Montreal, Mr. Michel Le Marchand and Mr. Christian Desrosiers. For the respondent, uh, Her Majesty the Queen, Mr. Christian Jarry. For the respondent, the Attorney General of Quebec, Mr. Julien Bernard, Mr. Jean-Vincent Lacroix, and Mr. Alexandre Duval. I have to say that. Um there are sealing orders and publication ban in effect from the lower court. Go ahead. Mr. Chief Justice, honorable members of the court, may it please the court, good morning. Before beginning the argument, I would mention two things for the benefit of the bench. You have before you a condensed book in which you have a two-page outline at the beginning. That outline mentions four specific points. I will be arguing to the first three. Mr. Gray will be arguing to the fourth. The second uh, item I would mention for the court's information is that Mr. Gray and myself have decided to divide our time. I will take the first 50 minutes and he will take the last 10. The day that a court of appeal can replace an acquittal for manslaughter with a conviction or overturn a criminal negligence acquittal based on findings of fact not accepted by the trial judge, our system falls apart. And it falls apart because there's no certainty left in the findings of the trier of fact. The trial judge made the following finding of fact, and you have it at tab two of your condensed book. At tab two, you have some extracts from the trial judge, and I would draw your attention to paragraph 449. 449 stated, Mitra Javan Mardi has the necessary competence to administer injections, and in each of the stages, she took the necessary circumstances in in the app. And you have that at tab three, paragraph 92 of the Court of Appeal decision wrongly stated that a, an uncontested fact, paragraph 92, number four, was that the respondent is not able to recognize the symptoms, the complications that are foreseeable related to injections provided by intravenous method or to react adequately when they manifest themselves. Trial judge. The trial judge also made the following finding of fact 
and that's at paragraph 445, once again in tab 2 of the condensed book. But is it really the same thing? It's one thing to say, you know how to put the needle in the arm and how to hang the IV bag and how to control the flow. That's, that's the giving of the injection. What happens when you have a bad reaction and how you respond to it? Is that the same thing? In the context of what the trial judge found concerning Mrs. Javan Marty's qualifications, education, and capacities, it is. And in fact, one of the questions asked of Mrs. Javan Marty in uh, cross-examination about a course she took in British Columbia was whether that course covered emergency measures, and it did. So we respectfully submit that what the trial judge had before her was extensive evidence of the high level of qualification of Mrs. Javan Marty to do exactly what she was doing. But she absolutely failed, totally, to provide competent advice to the man when he was manifesting these serious symptoms. Justice Rowe, we respectfully submit that if we look at the whole of the evidence of Mrs. Javan Marty, which was accepted by the judge as credible, that would not be a fact respectfully submitted. And in that evidence you have in the, uh, in the trial book, and the judge's tab two, the judge's reasons, paragraph 262 and following, that, and that according to Mrs. Javan Marty, there were several causes that could have been the reason for the reaction, and she proceeded by elimination, which any qualified naturopathic doctor or medical doctor would do. She eliminated the allergic reaction because the nature of the products administered would, would make that unlikely, paragraph 263. She eliminated infection because there were no extreme changes like those we would see with infection. And she does not find, elle, elle ne voit pas les frissons ou la fièvre. No. She doesn't see any fever or chill. See the confusion one would see with infection. So, and, and finally, the arm of Mr. Mattern, where the needle went in, showed no signs of any kind of anomaly. This was toxic shock, wasn't it? Um, I believe that the, uh, the, um, the uh, shock endocon... Uh, yes, exactly. And, but the symptoms she has, we have to look at what she was seeing at the moment that this happened in her clinic. But furthermore, um, she also checked for any symptoms that would be compatible with cardiac problems, because that's what Mr. Mattern had, and she didn't see those. And then she, she, was, she learned from his daughter that he had not eaten in the morning. And then she explained that this could be a, a hypoglycemic reaction. And that's why she made the suggestion she did. And we respectfully submit that the Court of Appeal took that suggestion of sugar or honey completely out of context when they make abstraction of all of this testimony, which was accepted by the trial judge. The trial judge said she found Mitra Javan Marty credible. And this was that testimony. And we also respectfully submit that when the Court of Appeal says that it was somehow uh, incompetent not to call 911, they are making complete abstraction of the fact that the testimony of everyone at trial was that Mr. Mattern did not want them to call 911. He did not want to go to the hospital. He refused at least three times. And when he finally went in the middle of the night, contrary to what my colleagues for the um, respondents say in their factum, it wasn't because his daughter, Afefi, de la suggestion de Madame Javan-Marty. Disregarded the suggestion of Ms. Javan-Marty. Still refused. So we respectfully submit that what really failed Roger Mattern was the, 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 the bacteria inside of a, of, a, of a little vial where no one could ever have seen it. Had Mrs. Javan-Marty been a medical doctor, she would have been no more able to see that bacteria than she could as a naturopathic practitioner.
And if we're concerned here with punishing what is morally um, blamable, it is not morally blameable. But she, if she had been a doctor, maybe she would have the reaction to uh, suggest to go to the hospital. Your Lordship, if you, if you refer back to the testimony in, in, uh, in trial and what was, what was, um, what was um, accepted by the trial judge, it was accepted that Mr. Matron did not want to go, and there was also testimony given about the obligation of a, of a medical practitioner to respect uh, and I believe it's even in the Civil Code of Quebec, someone's desire to refuse treatment. Mr. Mattern is not a five-year-old child. He's a grown man, and he said, no, I do not want to go. I have no more faith in the medical system. At that point in time, and there was discussion, not just from Mrs. Javin Marty's testimony, but from some of the expert doctors, there was, there was testimony that once a patient says, I do not want to go, then a medical doctor has no business forcing them to go to the hospital. And in his particular circumstances, Mr. Mattern had ended up in the clinic in the first place because he was so disillusioned by the traditional medical system. So we respectfully submit that on that first finding of fact, the Court of Appeal did in fact replace the legitimate finding with a completely different one. And we also maintain that the Court of Appeal replaced another very important finding of fact, and that was at paragraph 445 of um, the judgment in first instance. It's again at tab one of your condensed book. Paragraph 445, the injection created, uh, tab two, paragraph 445. Uh, hold on a second now. 445 and 448. The acts themselves are not objectively dangerous. The intravenous uh, uh, injection was administered according to the applicable rules, and it is uh, uh, plausible that the uh, injection administered by uh, Madame Javan Mardi uh, did not uh, represent a danger or harm. Finding of fact, but the Court of Appeal and the, and the prosecution, and we would urge caution in looking at respondents' factum because, for example, in paragraph 75 of their factum, the respondents say that the dangerousness of the intravenous was accepted because the judge accepted the testimony of an expert, uh, Dr. Marchand. That is a misrepresentation with respect of what the finding of fact was, and that's paragraph 75 of the respondent's factum. We urge caution. That is a misrepresentation. And paragraph 22 of respondent's factum to say that the IV represented a dangerosité singulière is also with respect a misrepresentation. What she said is that the the uh, injection administered par Mitrejavin Mardi. The injection administered, keeping in mind all the circumstances. Everything that went on, ne présentait pas de danger ni de risque. Did not present a danger or a risk of prejudice or harm. The fact that it did not present danger. Was there expert evidence to say that that type of solution or liquid injected uh, to the patient? Uh, was not dangerous? Absolutely. The Crown's own witness, the cardiologist who treated Mr. Mattern, Dr. White, indicated that that was in fact a product that was not dangerous for his uh, patient, for Mr. Mattern. It's not Mattern. so much the product, I think. It's not so much the product, but the chance 
that it can be contaminated once, that, you, once you do an injection. I think uh, that's where the danger is. Well, well, and that's, that's clearly why the Court of Appeal felt that it wanted to find a way to intervene. And we respectfully submit that because it did not like the finding of fact of the trial judge, it could not intervene. Was there, uh, was there not also evidence from, from expert physicians that it, is, that it is the case that you will have multiple injections from the same vial in hospitals in Quebec? Well, that's what I would, thank you, uh, thank you, Justice Brown. That's precisely what I was getting to, is that the Court of Appeal made abstraction of the evidence about the uni-dose vial. They clearly didn't like it. They clearly, that's clearly where they wanted to intervene. But the evidence on the uni-dose vial was that um, it is, in fact, Dr. Alan Gaby, a leading um, doctor, nutritional medicine expert, author, um, he indicated in his testimony that he does it himself to use a unidose vial more than once, as long as it's in a short period of a few hours, which was the case. And also, Dr. Um, uh, um, Dr. Becker, I believe, um, mentioned that it's, uh, it's done in public hospitals for reasons of cost. Can I just, I, I appreciate that you're at the point in your argument where you're going through the facts. It would help me if you, since you're dealing with paragraphs 445 and 449, um, and particularly 449 where the trial judge um, says that Mitre Javan Mardi a les compétences. Elle a les compétences requises. On, uh, when we get to the legal test of marked departure, uh, the standard of care that a reasonable person would have observed who is that reasonable person? Are you talking about what other doctors would do? Are you talking about what other naturopaths would do? Are we allowed to look at that? Because it seems that unless we know what lens we are considering these facts in. Well, our position is that, and, and we have it later in the argument, and I don't mind moving to it now, our position is that the particular, uh, the education and the experience of Mitra Javan Marty are essential to understand the mens rea, and the, 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 the possible uh, guilty mind or not of someone in these circumstances. And this is why the trial judge said, Mitra Javan Marti a des compétences requises pour administrer des injections, et ce à chacun des étapes, et elle a pris des précautions nécessaires. And this at all the necessary stages, and she took the necessary precautions. Not in the situation of someone who applied for a license as a doctor, couldn't get it because they were total incompetent, uh, had no training, had no education, and went ahead and, and gave injections and, and in dangerous circumstances. That's, this is not, this is <coughs> not Cretan, that kind of negligence. We have no negligence here. She did everything she could possibly do. Creighton, I think that this court said that you don't take into consideration personal characteristics. Creighton. Justice McLaughlin and Creighton, when she said that, I respectfully submit, was referring to in the evaluation of the, the minimum standard of the actus reus. But we respectfully submit that in light of Beattie and what's been said since, it cannot be that Justice McLaughlin meant that you could never defend yourself, you could never defend yourself based on the fact that you used everything at your disposition to avoid creating a risk. Particularly in the context of a strict liability offense. Exactly. If you cannot, If you cannot explain why it is that you are competent to do this and that you are capable and that you've been trained and so on and so forth, um, then you have no defense. You just, you deprive the person it seems to me, of making the only defense available to them, which is given my competence, given my training, given my experience, what 
would be a very dangerous act if I did it is, is de minimis is, in terms of dangerous when someone who is capable and competent does it. Does it. And, and, that's why, and that's why the province is able to legislate. The province has made a political choice that the only people who will be able to give intravenous will be licensed doctors or nurses. That's a political choice. But they are able to make that choice and legislate because the act itself, when properly done, is not objectively so dangerous. What do you make of uh, the comments of Justice uh, Charon of this court in Beatty when she says that she writes, Sauf le risque, unless uh, one's ability to assess the risk or to create uh, the uh, individual characteristics such as age, experience, and the level of education are not relevant. There's a wanton and reckless disregard for another person for harm or for death to another person. The wanton and reckless disregard actus reus because in our criminal law system we want to keep it at a minimum standard because that, Justice McLaughlin said, is the fair thing to do. But Justice McLaughlin could not have meant that a person would be in a situation where they have all of the reasons to defend themselves based on what they have learned and know and they can't do it. I think what it. she's saying really is that you don't hold someone um, um, the Crown doesn't get a leg up. When you're charged with dangerous driving, you happen to be a race car driver. We don't measure your, um, we, we don't measure you in, in terms of you're your better driver, more experienced or whatever. You measure it against the reasonable person. That's what she was saying. Exactly. It's not there as a, uh, the Crown can't use it as a sword, but surely the defense can use it as a shield. I mean, that's the point. It would seem that if we are truly concerned about not convicting the people who are not morally blameworthy, then you are right, uh, Justice Moldaver. The thing, as I understand it, the trial judge found that she was competent in all respects, giving intravenous yes. objections. Yes. Before, during, after. Absolutely. Right. Second of all, if I understand it, the good Lord, him or herself, could not have saved this person. Going to the hospital, calling 911, bringing an ambulance, this thing was so contaminated that I, my understanding is no one could have survived it. And the contamination was invisible. So that whether Mitra Javan Marty had had a license or two licenses or ten licenses, she still would not have been able to see it. And had she been a medical doctor, we respectfully submit that the same process of elimination would have taken place to eliminate all of those reasons why this could be happening. They would have come to the same conclusion and perhaps recommended the same solution. But you would take a different position, as I understand it, if in fact she knew or should have known that she was dealing with a contaminated vial. Well, of course, but there's no way for her to know. No, no, I, I understand that. But, and, the, but. and the trial judge found, that, as a matter of fact, that she dealt with, because there was no, nothing available in Quebec, she applied to herself the regulation that existed in other provinces, and she dealt with the highest reputable pharmacies for naturopathic products in Ontario. The very, the very best. So she did what she could, and the, and the trial judge also found on that, on that business of the unidose vial, that it was plausible that the infection entered after the second puncture, so at the third. 
So, because usually you, you use it only once. Well, except that the, yes and no, if I may give a lawyer's answer to that, uh, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, because <laughs> at trial, yes, there was evidence that unidos means, as it says, unidos, but there was significant expert evidence that it is not in and of itself dangerous if the window of time is three to four or five hours, half a day, whatever. But the time as we had it in this, in this file. So you just increase the risk. Well, in fact, that was not even, that was not even um, part of the evidence of the expert witnesses. They said that they have no qualms. Mr. Dr. Gaby said no qualms about using it if it's in a short window of time. Now, it, obviously, the prosecution witnesses made their own evidence concerning all of this, but the trial judge found, and this is a finding of fact that cannot be disturbed, the trial judge found that this was an acceptable use. But I'm afraid trial, even factual matters can be disturbed on a certain standard of review. They're not totally inviolable. I want to come back to Creighton. Um, you have given us a reading of Creighton which is uh, favorable to your client and which was relied upon by the trial judge in applying uh, the objective standard, the modified objective standard. Uh, if you're wrong, if you're wrong with respect to the interpretation of Creighton and if a reading of Creighton follows very closely the uh, citation of the, uh, given by the Chief Justice. Did not the trial judge make an error of law in terms of the objective standard to be applied because, assuming that you're wrong about Creighton, did she not make an error of law which cuts to, to, the, to the, the validity of the verdict and which would actually require a new trial. No, uh, Justice Roshi did not, because if we are wrong, the circumstances of the event must be considered by the trial judge, and we respectfully submit that the education and experience of this person formed the circumstances of the event. So even on the actus reus, our position is that as circumstances of the event, the trial judge had a right to look at education and experience, and Alter not alternatively, but also we suggest that the fair and right thing for Canadian society is that in That's a case... is a simple one. If the trial judge applies the wrong legal test, is that not an error of law that ordinarily gives rise to a new trial? Justice Rowe, yes, an error, it would, but she did not, with respect, she did not. Because this education and, and experience if she's right and it cannot be considered in the mens rea, it must be, it must be considered in the circumstances of the offense. I would have thought that if in fact, particularly in a strict liability crime, that the accused cannot rely on his or her personal characteristics as in this case, there would be a very strong constitutional argument to say that you are depriving the accused of the right to make full answer in defense, leaving aside what Creighton... So it seems to me if there's an interpretation of Creighton that doesn't lead to that, that's the one that we should give it. We, we, would, we would respectfully agree um, uh, with that, uh, um, just, Justice Maldaver. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chairman, uh, is it not a fact that many trial judges, uh, in other cases, of course, are following what you say is uh, your interpretation of Cretan.
Well, yes, in fact, in our, um, in our factum, you will find, and I have the, the page number just a little bit later Paragraph here. Paragraphs 67 and 68. Uh, yes, it was actually, yes, the footnote I wanted to refer you to. On page 22 of our factum, in footnote 128, We've listed for the court just a certain number of cases from across the country where trial courts are saying the reasonable policeman, the reasonably experienced hunter, the reasonably prudent doctor. Uh, we respectfully submit that all over this country, trial courts are using those, uh, ish, those questions of experience and training because it's the fair and right thing to do. If, are these all instances where it's being used as a shield? as well, opposed to a sword? I can't honestly say that I've read every one of them and can answer that for you, honestly, according to the facts of each one, but I do know the following. If trial courts across the country are saying reasonable policeman, reasonable experienced hunter, something is going on out there with Creighton and the court's understanding of Creighton and the court's understanding of fairness. Because in order to be fair to these accused persons, the trial courts have felt the need to refer, even in the Court of Appeal, Justice Gagnon referred to le nature pas de raisonnable, this even is, in this case. This is an important point. I'm wondering if I can pull you back to the facts. I have a question about this. Is there, for the purposes of assessing objective dangerousness, a difference between an injection and an intravenous injection, right? So an injection that goes into the tissue, the muscle or whatever, and it's a momentary thing, you know, a flu shot. Um, as opposed to something that goes straight into the bloodstream, takes a while, matter of minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, whatever. Is that, is that? We, is res that we respectfully submit that that was submitted to the trial judge by the prosecution with experts trying to make that distinction. And the trial judge found, as a matter of fact, that the IV was plausibly not dangerous. So is there a difference? We submit there is not. We submit that there's a, a vast difference in something like the Creighton facts where the, the offense was trafficking of, of narcotics by injection uh, and the objective dangerousness of that. But we respectfully submit that there's, in assessing objective dangerousness, it's a red herring to say it's between an IV and some other kind of injection because both are able to be regulated by the province. And if an act is objectively dangerous in and of itself, no province can regulate it into something that is not. If it's objectively dangerous, we respectfully submit it cannot be regulated. It's quite simply objectively dangerous. I, th I think the Crown puts to you, though, that if it's an unauthorized medical act, it's, it's objectively dangerous. And my question to you is, uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to this. Um, I hope the I advance do. of practicing um, unauthorized medicine. Um, I know there's a fine that attaches to it. Uh, is there, uh, a, is jail a possibility for a conviction for unauthorized practice of medicine in Quebec? I, I don't believe it is. Mr. Gray would perhaps know better than I. I don't believe it is. Um, but we submit to this court that the act here uh, is, is, is not having the license because everything else as a finding of fact by the trial judge was done according to the rules of the practice. So in terms of the question about jail term, I don't, uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. Generally, provincial statutes would not, but we do have exceptions, and I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. To for the, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, to come back to Creighton, um, would you concede that the first judge made a mistake in law 
when um, she mentions that a reasonable person, we should ask whether a reasonable person in the same circumstances um, would that uh, would have been aware that the likely consequences of is or her unlawful conduct would create the risk of death. Well, <laughs> that was referred to by the dissent in Creighton, whereas the majority referred to the risk of bodily injuries only. Quite correctly, that was referred to by the dissent, but we maintain that she made no error for the following reason. If the court would look to paragraphs 439, 448, and 450 of her judgment and read them together, it is clear that she decided on the basis of a risk of prejudice. And I, I bring the court to 439. En considérant la preuve présentée, la conduite et le comportement de mardi, le tribunal n'est pas convaincu, hors de tout doute raisonnable, que la personne raisonnable dans les circonstances aurait été consciente du risque et du danger or of the danger inherent in, its beha in their behavior. She says clearly, it is plausible that the injection administered by Ms. Javan Mardi, given all of the circumstances, was not a danger nor harm. That regardless of whether she misquoted the dissent instead of the majority, the test she applied was the right one. It's a matter of a slip of the tongue, a matter of semantics. She chose the wrong paragraph, but the test she applied is clear in 448. And it's the second branch of, of what is, of course, good law from Creighton. And personne raisonnable comprendrait qu'il présente un risque de préjudice. A reasonable person would understand there's a risk of harm. Together, that is clear that she applied the right test. But at 4.50, she comes back with the same citation in Creighton, citing the dissent again. Yes, she's citing the dissent. It refers to the, the risk of death. But she's citing the dissent, but in that paragraph, it's clearly a kind of a statement. It's not her finding. It's her statement of the law, but her finding is at 448, and she doesn't say it isn't the, that the point I made no. earlier. Her statement of the law was wrong. When you apply the wrong legal test, that undermines the soundness of the verdict, does it not? Justice Rowe, it would, but we must not uh, confuse her statement of the law and her application of the law. She stated one thing, she applied the correct standard, and we see that in paragraph 448. And, and we respectfully submit that in the whole of the evidence and the whole of her assessment of the evidence, you see that she's applied the right standard. She applied the standard that what has to be foreseen is the bodily arm and not the death. Exactly. Because Although she, at uh, the beginning, she stated that what has to be foreseen is the, the death, and it's then you say in order to uh, determine uh, the, uh, the other elements of the unlawful act of manslaughter, you say that she properly uh, applied uh, the test, yes. which was to foresee the, the bodily harm. Well, and she says risk of prejudice, which, which is, we respectfully submit, the clear indication that she applied the right test. The, uh, Wait, could I just interrupt for a second? Because there's some confusion here as to about the, what's the unlawful act. It seems to me, and I think we have to parse this out. The unlawful act here surely cannot just be practicing medicine without a license. You've got to look at the particular act, it seems to me, if you're going to try to move this into a manslaughter, an unlawful manslaughter, lawful act manslaughter. So, for example, there may be many things that she could do 
that wouldn't have the slightest danger attached to them, even though she's still practicing medicine without a license. But what we have That's here correct. is the attachment of the intravenous, you know, um, yes. unit, and, and clearly, that's the particularization, it seems to me. And clearly, that could be a dangerous act, objectively dangerous, if I did it. Well, but, and that's the point, isn't it? I mean, and, and what, we've, what we've submitted in our arguments is that the, the, the fact of administering an IV is not the offense in and of itself. It's, it's not, it's not a, a penal offense anywhere to administer an IV. It is if you don't have the license in the medical act. But we respectfully agree with you, with, uh, with you Justice Muldaver, that um, uh, it's not every single act of practicing medicine without a license that, that could be objectively dangerous. But we also maintain that the administration of the IV in the circumstances of this case is not objectively dangerous. And that was a finding of fact, and that was hers to make. And that was hers to make. Um, you know, what does objectively dangerous mean? It doesn't mean that every act that has danger associated with it is objectively dangerous. I mean, it, it may well be somewhat dangerous to drive, but we can't say that driving is objectively dangerous when it's done within the rules and with the license. So um, to qualify every act that includes some element of danger as being objectively dangerous would run the risk of criminalizing vast segments of the population. Um, we've, I've said before, and, and, I, and I, I will repeat only briefly, that, that um, if it were objectively dangerous, the giving of the IV, there would be no circumstances in which it could be encadré um, or it could be uh, uh, framed in legislation. Uh, and not only did she have the training, she had the experience, she bought from the best suppliers, and she employed sufficient asepsis measures in her clinic, and that was also key to the judge's decision. And you know, those who are found guilty in criminal law must be the morally blameworthy. Um, to determine uh, the level of moral blameworthiness for manslaughter or criminal negligence causing death it requires more than doing it in the abstract. She looked at all of these factors and said this was safe. You know, and dangerousness, we respectfully submit, is a finding of fact. This judge found that fact, and that cannot be disturbed. Um, the prosecution, we submit, had no right of appeal against the trial judge's finding of fact um, that the administrating of the IV, while not licensed to do so, uh, was uh, not objectively dangerous and did not make bodily harm likely to, um, to occur. The illegality, in answer a bit to your comment, Justice Muldaver, the illegality we submit must constitute the danger. The illegality must make the bodily harm likely to occur. And so in this example, having the license doesn't make the bodily harm likely to occur. I, I must say, I, I don't follow that. It seems to me that there are three necessary elements to this offense, not two. You've said that uh, there's the unlawful act being objectively dangerous. The danger must arise from the unlawfulness. I don't read it that way. I see, is there an unlawful act, number one? Two, is it objective? objectively dangerous, and three, is there a marked departure from the standard? I, I see no basis to say that the dangerousness must arise from the illegality. It seems to me there are two separate elements, not one. We respectfully submit that in order to base a conviction for manslaughter, the illegality must arise from the unlawful, the, the, unlaw, the dangerousness must arise from the unlawful act. Otherwise, uh, what standard are we working to for a conviction for manslaughter? 
and, and the illegal act itself must also be the significant contributing cause of death. And the illegal act here, um, we respectfully submit, was not a, a significant contributing cause of death. Not having a license to give the IV she gave is not a significant contributing cause of death. Manslaughter by means of an unlawful act does not mean manslaughter during an unlawful act. And I draw the court's attention to the authorities, Sankoff, Manning, and Sankoff at tab six of the book. And that would be at paragraph uh, 19.17. The term by means of inserts an additional level of causal analysis into the equation. As we have seen, for a person to commit homicide, their actions must cause the death of a human being. For example, someone who drives their car and hits a person, killing them, will clearly satisfy the de minimis level of causation necessary to have the death classified as a homicide. But for the killing to be considered culpable, the code also requires the death to be caused by means of an unlawful act and not merely during an unlawful act. Thus, merely driving without a valid license and causing someone's death while in the act of driving would not, without more, be causing someone's death by means of an unlawful act. The unlawful act itself must be a significant contributing cause of the death for it to constitute culpable homicide. So let's remove the words in this, thus merely driving without a valid license and causing someone's death while in the act of driving, and replace with that, thus merely administering an intravenous treatment without a valid license and causing someone's death while doing it. We respectfully submit the case before you does not justify conviction on either count. A person who... Sorry, is that the way the information is, or indictment is framed? I, what's the wording of the information? Uh, can... You don't have to waste your time on it. Maybe some, one of your friends can... Thank you. Thank you. See, it's not enough that, but for the actions of the accused, death would not have occurred. Factual causation requires that the result would not have happened, but for the unlawful act. It was open to the trial judge to decide that the violation of the predicate offense, not being licensed to practice medicine, was not a significant contributing cause of death. Thank you. Um, this is precisely what she found. It was her role to find that. That was factual causation. That's a you're, finding you're of fact. You're quite right that uh, the unfortunate individual here didn't die because uh, she didn't have a license. Of course, that's true. I mean, I, you've persuaded me as to that point. But uh, again, I come back, and I don't want to be tedious by repetition. The unlawfulness of the act, it seems to me, is distinct conceptually from its being objectively dangerous. And if it is objectively dangerous, and if it is unlawful, then the requirements are met, it seems to me, as opposed to your saying, ah, it is the unlawfulness which must give rise to the danger and much, must lead to the death. And, and, and this is just a regulatory arrangement that Quebec has that doesn't exist in other provinces, so there's no problem here. It was an unlawful act because it was contrary to law, 
And the real question here is whether or not it was dangerous. I understand your submission that there were findings of fact by the trial judge that it was not so. Which findings of fact were in effect reversed by the Court of Appeal? That, I think, is, is sort of your fertile ground, as opposed to the, the fact that somehow the illegality itself has to... And, and, and that is our, our point, is that those findings of fact should not have been reversed by the Court of Appeal. They hadn't, according to the terms of George of this court, which is in, in tab... Um, uh, oh, dear. Oh. I do have it in one of the tabs of the... Uh, of the uh, uh, in tab four of the uh, book you received this morning, while one may disagree with the weight the trial judge gave this evidence, no legal error arise, uh, arises from mere disagreements over factual inferences or the weight of evidence. And uh, um, uh, coming back to you, uh, Justice Muldaver, the... Um, uh, it Lawful act. It's in the, I, I see that on page one of the, uh, the record. Is that it? Uh, well, I have it in... in, in French, um, yeah, uh, uh, cause the death of Roger causing manslaughter under 234 and 236B of the criminal code. But it doesn't particularize. It doesn't particularize. No, the act. It, it does not particularize. No. Okay, no. thank you. Yeah. But, but just to follow up on Justice Rowe's point for a second, I mean, do you maintain that it has to, the objective dangerousness has to be from the illegality as opposed to just from the act. I mean, you know, Crichton, the thing is usually um, the unlawful act is inherently dangerous. I mean, Crichton involved an injection, but it was an injection of cocaine. Mm -hmm. but, That's right. But, but so can you just kind of close off that point? Well, we me? respectfully submit that it is, it is the unlawful act that must be objectively dangerous. But is it the unlawfulness or is it the act? Because the Crown, the Crown puts against you, well, they're unlicensed, right? And if they're unlicensed, then it's an inherently dangerous act. Well, no, it's not, it's not the, the fact of not being licensed that, that is being debated as to whether it's objectively dangerous. Um, a person who has no license to practice medicine might give someone an aspirin, um, you know, or, 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 or I don't know how many other examples, but we respectfully submit that the Crown's position here was that the, um, the intravenous was objectively dangerous. We submit that it is not, and we submit that the only unlawful act here was, was the fact of not having a license to administer that IV. And the circumstances of this case support that kind of argument because nothing would have changed if Mitra Javan Marty had a license. She followed all the same steps, followed all the same rules, bought all the same products, had all the same hygiene uh, precautions and, and what have you. So we respectfully submit that uh, it, the, neither the unlawful act of not holding the license nor the giving of the intravenous were objectively dangerous. And the trial judge agreed with us. The trial judge found as a matter of fact that, they, that, that there, there was nothing objectively dangerous here. The trial judge addressed herself to whether it was the giving of the intravenous that was objectively dangerous. And that's where she says that it's plausible that it was, it, was perf it was not dangerous in the circumstances. So that's, I suppose, the best answer I yeah. can yeah. give you on Maybe that. Um, the, um, the, the question of causation, though, um, which we were speaking about, the factual, we maintain that the factual causation, um, that, that the result would not have happened but for the unlawful act, and the, the, the trial judge was, a, was allowed to find 
that the predicate offense, not being licensed to practice medicine, was not a significant contributing cause of death. And she found that. And she found that. So without factual causation, there could be no legal causation. So we respectfully submit that legal causation requires a finding that the unlawful act was a significant contributing cause of death. And the unlawful act here is not holding the license to administer the IV as required in the province of Quebec. Had she had a license, we maintain that we'd be before the same fact situation, Mr. Matern would be deceased and we would not be here. We would not be here. Had she been a medical doctor, we would have been looking at the same basic education and training. The evidence was such that she had seven years, including a doctoral degree in naturopathic medicine. The evidence was such that the courses were all the same as medical doctors except pharmacology, less pharmacology and more nutrient-based courses. Um, the, the, the continuing education courses, the BC course, you know, they, the prosecution made a big deal over the fact that the judge said that she had followed a course for three days in Ontario, when in fact she had just brought in the materials and used them, but she had not followed the course. But she in fact had testified that she had followed, though, though no regulation obliged her to, of her own volition, she had followed a, I think, week-long course or longer in British Columbia, which included um, a week-long continuing education course on intravenous, uh, um, uh, administration of intravenous treatments, and she took the exam, though she was not obliged to, and she got the certification, though she was not obliged to. She's in a province where there's no regulation, but she takes the trouble and the time to make sure that she's up to date. So when the prosecution or when the respondent in their factum talk about, well, she didn't really take the Ontario course, we respectfully submit even the Ontario course. She had no obligation to go get the materials and read them, but she did because she was concerned about, she said, concerned about making sure she, she met the standards in provinces that were regulated. You have, your client was charged with two offences. One was the uh, uh, manslaughter offence, the other one was criminal negligence causing death and the Court of Appeal ordered a new trial there. Are you going to address that in your submissions? Well, we respectfully submit that, that the, the same problem exists in terms of the Court of Appeal revisiting factual conclusions, which they had no right to revisit. We respectfully submit that had they not done that, there was no basis to overturn that conviction. Is it not the case that uh, the trial judge again applied the wrong, well, let's not say again, in the instance of criminal agents causing death, applied the wrong legal standard? We respectfully submit not. When we look at that paragraph to which I drew the court's attention earlier, it is clear that she applied the right standard, that she applied the standard of prejudice, not of death. And, and we respectfully submit that she looked at the actus reus. Is this a wanton and reckless disregard for... for, for, for she, applied, she applied the right standard, but she referred to the wrong standard. Yes, but uh, um, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, um, is that really reviewable? Is that really why we have courts of appeal and the yeah, I would, Court I would have thought your argument would be that, that a lower standard vis-a-vis -vis the Crown was applied. That in fact, that to the extent she erred, she erred to the benefit of the Crown. Well, 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 that too, but the Crown has made a great deal over how, how, how um, this should be looked into because of the, the uh, well, there are two errors, and I think where, the one you're speaking of, I quite agree with you, and we put it in our factum. 
where the Crown has said, well, she made an error because she talked about marked departure, but it should have been marked and substantial departure. And if you can't meet the marked departure test, well, you're not going to meet the marked and substantial departure test. So we respectfully submit that that error is a non-issue, a total non-issue. And that, I believe, is the one you may be referring to. But in terms of, you know, it, 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 it was definitely in favor of the Crown. So we were at a loss to understand where that argument comes from. Obviously, if the trial judge decided that it did not meet the marked departure test, well, then the Crown could never have had a verdict from her that it met the marked and substantial departure test. So on criminal negligence, we respectfully submit that she applied the proper test um, um, because it's, it's implicit. It's, it's implicit. If, you, if, she, if, if she says you can't meet marked departure, well, you can't meet marked and substantial departure. The, um, We, that any errors, any legal errors that may have been made in terms of things she said, they're harmless errors. You're, I mean, at worst, you'd apply the proviso. Well, the, the, correct, and the, and the prosecution actually puts, uh, or the respondent puts a, a fair bit of energy into three alleged errors. One, we've already discussed the uh, mentioning of the uh, dissidents of Justice Lemaire. The second one, describing the standard of criminal, for criminal negligence as marked departure when it's marked and substantial, which is a non-issue because if the Crown couldn't meet one burden, they certainly couldn't meet the other. And the third error that the Crown puts some uh, energy into is that there's uh, they, that she can't consider the personal characteristics, the experience, or the education, uh, when even the Court of Appeal refers to the naturopath um, um, raisonnable. And, uh, and of course, this, this alleged error about, well, she made a mistake over whether the accused had or not attended a course in Ontario. And we respectfully submit that um, we've covered that in the, uh, in the comments just a few moments ago. Um, we would um, uh, just have a word of warning to the court uh, in, the, um, in the reading of Respondent's Factum because the footnotes will consistently take this court to the trial evidence, but do not state when that trial evidence was not part of the findings of the trial judge. We respectfully submit that the respondent may not agree with those findings, but he cannot pretend that they are not there nor can he encourage this court to pretend that they are not there. The Court of Appeal made that mistake. We humbly ask you to reverse that mistake and to restore the acquittals. Thank you. morning, my ladies, my lord. Well, I shouldn't use those words anymore. Um, I uh, am going to, uh, uh, my part is only on the uh, unlawful, unlawful act uh, homicide. And it is really a gloss on what my colleague said. Uh, but I think the question I would want to put is the following. Can an act explicitly lawful in part of Canada form the basis of a manslaughter conviction. And we, in the last part of our factum, used constitutional arguments. We also used statutory interpretation arguments. The submission is that it is unthinkable that an act which is lawful would be the basis of a manslaughter conviction. Now, there are, one thing has to be said, that the Court of Appeal erred when it said 
that it was not lawful anywhere. It made an analysis, and there were two errors in that analysis. First is the factual, uh, factual elements. There were uh, naturopaths performing intravenous all over Canada, and the factum of some of the intravenous shows it, as does ours. But there is another more basic error in that, in that it doesn't matter if there was a power in Ontario on June 11, 2008, to perform intravenous. The very fact that since then it has been passed uh, and allowed to be done is evidence that it is not objectively dangerous. It is unthinkable that something, uh, and uh, that comes in our paragraph 108. Well, surely that's a factor, but it's not determinative. I We're think not bound by the wisdom of Saskatchewan's legislators or Alberta's legislators to the ex that the, their judgment that this is safe, but it's a consideration, I suppose. Uh, I think we should look at paragraph 108 of our factum, where I did leave the, uh, uh, the possibility that, Mr. that Justice Brown just brought up. Acts lawful in parts of Canada should not normally be held to be objectively dangerous. There may be a possibility of a legislature gone off the rails or something of that sort, which is what you've raised, but I think as a general principle, uh, and I think it's the flip side of something that Matt Sherman said. Matt Sherman said that a provincial government couldn't make something objectively dangerous, benign. They couldn't legislate to allow objectively dangerous things. The flip side is that if they do legitimately make something legal, then it should not normally be held to be objectively dangerous. Mr. Gray, am I worrying unnecessarily when I say that the flip side for me may be to render something as a marked departure because only one province makes it lawful and nine others don't. So we get into a numbers game and I'm just really nervous about where that's going to take us. I think if we get into the numbers games, I don't want to get into the numbers game, but if we do, then eight provinces at least are on the side of it not being objectively dangerous, and only one is completely, and as Matt Sherman showed, it's for political reasons, which we don't question, have a very rigid view of who can practice medicine and who cannot, but it doesn't... Well, we're not going to get into the reasons. I mean... No. They, they, may have, they may have evidence that the other provinces don't. I, I, I'm with Justice Abella. I, I don't really see where this is getting you. I think that normally, uh, it, it, well, if there's first of all the problem of equal protection of law. And that was referred to briefly by Justice Maldaver when he said if a person cannot raise the fact that uh, he knows what he was doing. If he's completely helpless, in front, there would be a constitutional issue, which was what you say. Uh, I don't actually think that the uh, sections should be found to be invalid, but I think they should be interpreted so as to allow a person to make a defense. One of the defenses is that it's lawful in other places. One of the defenses is that I know what I was doing. And not in a personal way, not I'm an excellent physician or I'm an excellent naturopath, but my training, my knowledge, my ability to perform it in other provinces makes it not objectively dangerous. What if it's not permitted in any province, but it's permitted in 10 US states? How is that? Is, is, does that create, does that create your, your presumption? I, I, I would go back to your original way of putting it, which is uh, that is 
helpful, it may be interesting, but it's not decisive. It is less decisive than when it is eight Canadian provinces. I think uh, uh, you could probably find something that is lawful anywhere in the world, but uh, on the whole, when it is a group of people who are trained to do so, who can do something in Canada, to find it to be an objectively dangerous act is something that would require extraordinary proof that is not there. In fact, the judge found that it isn't extraordinarily dangerous, but I think one has to take into account that situation. One also has to take into account the constitutional side. Now, the constitutional side, uh, on the equality, of course, I recognize that it's very difficult. It's been decided a number of times that province of residence is not uh, by itself uh, a ground for discrimination. But there is Corbière, and uh, there is uh, also the argument of equal protection of law. Now, equal protection of law uh, in the old Bill of Rights, you'll find that in tab nine of our uh, condensed book, a case that is little known, a case with the Manitoba Court of Appeal, Hayden, in 1983. I think they went on equal protection of law because section 15 was not yet enforced, to be uh, truthful, but they did talk about the fact that uh, the crime of being drunk on an Indian reserve. It was off reserve, was the crime. Yes. Yeah. It, the crime was off reserve, not on reserve. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the, uh, the fact is that that particular case raised the issue of the application of equal protection of law. Yeah. And I think that if you uh, raise that issue here, somebody who is authorized to practice who is authorized, uh, knows how to do it, has been found to know how to do it, would not get equal protection of law if in some absolutely automatic, almost strict liability way, the answer was the action is illegal because you can't practice medicine, the act is objectively dangerous and you have no defense whatsoever, even the fact that it's not objectively dangerous in, in these circumstances. Isn't it and, something that's going to depend more on the particular evidence that's presented by people in a field, uh, related field, medical, naturopathy, about whether this is inherently dangerous or not, regardless of whether or not there are one or two or several provinces that take the same or different views. Do you see, I, because I, otherwise I wouldn't want to leave an accused at the mercy of political vagaries that may or may not have anything to do with their moral culpability. It's a fact. It exists. Something in a particular area, provincial or federal, is or is not regulated or prohibited. That is going to, I think, depend for each accused on the facts of his or her own case. Well, if it does, it depends on the facts, then Matt Sherman's uh, argument is, uh, and, and Green uh, show very clearly that uh, there should have been no appeal to the Court of Appeal because the Crown has no appeal on the facts. So, uh, but I do think that there is a pertinent factor and especially connected to the fact that a person who is otherwise able to practice in Canada finds him or herself with absolutely no defense, finds themselves in a situation where they can be convicted of a serious crime like manslaughter merely by uh, the uh, uh, proof of illegality and uh, uh, an 
objective dangerosity that doesn't take into account the uh, particular situation. I don't think it's personalizing. See, the difference in Creighton was uh, uh, that uh, the, you don't personalize uh, the person. You don't, as Matt Sherman said, say, I'm a particularly good physician. Or, I've had a particularly good record. If you look at the hospital records, 90% of my clients have survived. That's not an answer. But it is different when you contextualize. And failure to con contextualize would raise a constitutional issue. One should not interpret acts that are lawful in most other provinces to be objectively dangerous unless, and I leave that possibility, unless there is uh, uh, some real anomaly in provincial legislation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have to take issue or question, I should say, the logical structure you're putting to us that implicitly in the other provinces, the eight provinces where this is permitted, they have said implicitly that this is not objectively dangerous. I, I don't think that necessarily follows. I don't think it speaks to whether or not it's objectively dangerous. It simply means that certain persons are authorized to do it, and, and when other jurisdictions they're not. I mean, performing surgery, I mean, I just, you know, I think performing surgery is objectively dangerous. Cutting somebody open, it's very serious business. And it, it but some persons are authorized to do it and others are not. And so the fact that some persons are authorized to do it doesn't, to me, speak to the point of whether or not it is objectively dangerous. And I come back to the point, which, forgive me, it's the third time. The unlawfulness and it being objectively dangerous, it seems to me, are two elements, not one. And you and your colleague, you obviously have a certain view which you're submitting to us and asking us to accept, insist on saying they are in fact one. I think your point was made by your colleague Justice Moldaver when he said if he performed it, it might be dangerous. So that is a, a different. Would be it would be dangerous. It would be dangerous. I think especially if it right. was on one of us. But I, <laughs> but, but I think I think what you would want to, you have to define the unlawful act broadly or narrowly. I think it has to be for purpose of criminal law, narrowly defined. You don't make large portions of life, driving, swimming, or whatever, objectively dangerous. What is objectively dangerous is the performance of IVs by people who uh, do not have the skills of the authority. But, and and what, you, what you find is that they've found that she does have the skills and the authority. But the objective act is not simply the IV. What if, the, what if the charge was unlawfully did administer IV um, and thereby did uh, an unlawful act? Unlawfully did, unlawfully did administer IV, which everybody would have to concede she did because she didn't have a license to do it, yeah. and did thereby cause death. It seems to me that when we cut through all this, that's really what this charge is. It's not just acting as, you know, it's not just performing medical treatment without a license. You've got to look at what, what's involved. And, and it seems to me that if you frame it the right way, I mean, if she'd done open heart surgery, you wouldn't just say, well, the unlawful act is she practiced medicine without a license. She performed unlawful heart surgery 
unlawfully. Then you get into the problem of an unlicensed New York physician from a top hospital who performs it in Montreal, and he doesn't have a right to perform it. But nevertheless, there is no objective danger. I think the objective danger refers, and I'm out of time. I, yeah, I would ask you to conclude, please. Yeah, the objective danger is, uh, uh, has to be narrowly defined uh, to the act, including the context. I would like, there's one answer that has to be given in Quebec, under the provincial, code, provincial law, it's only a fine that is possible if somebody is, uh, is uh, charged with that. There Thank is you. no imprisonment. Mr. Grant. Chief Justice, Justices, the Canadian Association of Naturopathic Doctors has intervened in this appeal to provide uh, you, the court, with some of the context of the regulation of naturopathic medicine in Canada. And the position of the, of the Canadian Association of Naturopathic Doctors is uh, set out in detail in our fact, and it is as follows. First, uh, in, in the five provinces, the five provinces which regulate the profession of naturopathic doctors, it has uh, the same, from a regulatory perspective, the same attributes as other regulated health professions. Secondly, in, to, in June 2008, at the time of the alleged offense, um, the therapy in question, IV therapy, was practiced in one province, Ontario, according to standards established by their regulator. It's now practiced in five provinces, or it's now regulated explicitly in the five provinces that regulate naturopathic doctors. And third, our position is that this, th these facts, the, the, these, these regulatory facts, are relevant to the question of whether it's objectively dangerous. They're not determinative of whether uh, the act is objectively dangerous, and they're not the only facts relevant. This is also capable of proof, but ob obviously expert evidence is also uh, relevant, um, but our position is that the existence of regulation in another province and standards uh, created by that, by that legislation and whether the accused conduct meets those standards, all of that is relevant to these questions that you've been asked. What if all those provinces revoked those authorizations? So they, they, they repealed the legislation authorizing naturopaths to practice. Is that conversely a consideration that courts can take into account? We would accept that it would be. And, and, there, and there may well be expert evidence capable of, 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 of explaining that legislative change, if there was such a legislative change that happened across the country. Okay. Uh, with, with my time, I would like to just specifically speak to the, to this, the point I raised about the status in Ontario at the time, because I understand this to be disputed by the Crown. Um, our position is that it was, as I said, lawful in Ontario and was practiced in accordance with standards established by the regulator. Uh, I have uh, pr provided you with a cadenced book, and I'm just going to, I want to identify for you what's in that book. At tab one is the legislation in effect in Ontario at the time, the Drugless Practitioners Act. This allowed for the creation of regulators for drugless practitioners. At tab two, was one such regulation established for drugless therapists, which is the name given to naturopaths, naturopathic doctors in Ontario at the time. This regulation creates a board of directors which has various powers uh, in this regulation to, uh, to regulate the profession, including the power to establish, um, to require registration and the power to discipline its members. And tab three is the, what's called the parenteral therapy policy uh, of 2004, which was established by that regulator and which addresses 
IV therapy. So it, what should we take out of, of that? I mean, that uh, we should invite uh, the province of Quebec to change their regulations or what? No, no I, I don't think for this court or for the trial judges to, to opine on the merits of, of these choices. It's simply that, uh, that this, the, the fact that there are these standards and whether the accused met these standards, I say, is relevant to, to whether or not there was, uh, her, her conduct was objectively dangerous or whether it was a marked and substantial departure from the standard of care. I, I, I just want to respond. There was a suggestion that a different, a different piece of legislation in Ontario, and notwithstanding what I've shown you, prohibited injections by naturopathic doctors. That was the Regulated Health Professions Act 1991. There is a, an exam, a relevant exemption. I put the text of that exemption at paragraph 22 of my factum, which exempted naturopaths from that act, from the prohibition in that act, uh, for activities within the scope of the practice of naturopathy. Subject to any questions, those are our submissions. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Right, Mr. Giuseppe, would it please the course, uh, the intervention of uh, uh, the Association de médecine naturopathique du Québec and l'Association agréée du Québec wants to underscore the importance of the requirement that intrinsically that it should be considered to be objectively uh, dangerous when one talks about an act that might lead to the unlawful act manslaughter. So it is objectively dangerous. That's our view. We believe that the commission of an illegal act per se that wouldn't be intrinsically objectively dangerous can nevertheless give opening to a conviction when we talk about criminal negligence leading to death and when we talk about uh, the marked and substantial departure of a standard that a reasonable person would have. Uh, this uh, case is tremendously important for naturopaths in Quebec. Naturopathy is a uh, complementary uh, medicine area and is uh, recognized by various uh, provinces in Canada and uh, by the International Association of Health. Uh, and uh, so it is not regulated in Quebec, uh, as is the case in other provinces, but it would uh, make uh, things uh, difficult if uh, one were uh, to say that uh, this is an illegal practice as is being put forward today. And I would draw you uh, your attention to the provision. Alors, l'exercice de la médecine. It's a practicing medicine. And here I've underscored, it says the following activities in the practice of medicine are reserved to physicians. And I draw your attention to diagnosing illnesses, prescribing diagnostic examinations, five prescribing medications and other substances such as vitamin C, seven using techniques or applying treatments that are invasive or, and the legislator said, or entail risks of injury. But what does it mean invasive? answer. It, one could think that it might be an ejection. I accept that. I've also read a decision from a court that uh, stated that this is not the appropriate uh, term to use in French, but I think that this is something that's understood by everyone. And what I'd like to draw your attention to is at tab two, where the offense is uh, created. Here it says, no person shall claim in any manner to be a physician 
and or engage in a professional activity reserved to the members of a professional order, and if we go a little bit further on, unless he holds a valid appropriate permit and is entered on the role of the order empowered to issue the permit. That's the offense we're dealing with. Permit and without a license. Donc, un médecin qualifié. So a qualified physician who is entirely competent, who hasn't paid his dues, and is not on the role of the order, is committing that offense. And that's the same thing for the physician who is removed in relation to conduct that has nothing to do with his competency. But that is a disciplinary measure, yes, but it's also an offense of illegal practice. And Justice Karakatsanis is 188 and 188.1 of the Code des Professions. $1,500 penalty to $62,500 penalty. That's the penalty for that offense. Donc c'est ça qui est en jeu ici. So that's what at issue before you. We are not denying that fact that an illicit act can be an element that is looked at in assessing the conduct. But when one looks at the illicit act, it must be intrinsically dangerous. Justice Sapinka in D'Souza had underscored that it's not just all criminal acts that will give an opening to that offense. And we gave you the example of driving without a permit or hunting without a permit. And that leads to the death because one doesn't have a permit is an illegal act. But this illegal act could not justify a conviction for a unlawful manslaughter act. And so one has to look at the intentions of that act. So there has to be a link between the illegality of the act that is being referred to and the causal link or the causal nexus. And the illegality is the illegal practice without a permit. And so these are the submissions. I only have six sections left. Unless you have questions, that brings an end to my submissions. Thank you. Morning. Uh, so, on behalf of the Criminal Lawyers Association, I want to make a plea for having uniformity across the country in the meaning of unlawful act. And this sort of squarely deals with Justice Sapinka's judgment in D'Souza, where he references uh, that the unlawful act can emanate from a breach of a federal or provincial statute. And what I want us to consider is the relationship between that judgment, on the one hand, and then a series of judgments afterwards that admittedly deal with the administration of criminal law and how we do the procedure of criminal law. And I'm thinking about cases like SS, which is a case about alternative measures. You'll remember Ontario did not initially proclaim alternative measures, and the question was whether that differential in treatment from one province to Ontario was somehow unconstitutional. But what this court did in cases like SS and SG and Turpin was to look at the legislation that enabled the federal legislation that enabled the province to take those administrative and procedural steps and concluded that Parliament intended 
that the province do that. And, and, and in fact, for those particular subject areas, there was a salutary effect on the Federation overall because it allowed for individual circumstances and individual provinces to administer the criminal law with regard to their local norms. That kind of uh, delegation, for lack of a better word, to the province is just entirely absent when we're dealing with the, under the meaning of unlawful act. And but is it yes, not within the competence of the province to define what is legally to be done in terms of medical procedures? And as a second question, I know your time is short, does not that shape what sh legal shield can be offered? Because if this had happened in Ontario, uh, the accused might have said, ah, the first element of the offense is not made out. There was no unlawful act. But in Quebec, because of the valid operation of provincial law, that shield is not available. It is precisely that differential that I wish you to eliminate. I wish you to sort of understand unlawful act as being, as we say in our factum, uh, a federal act. Now, that doesn't mean that this kind of conduct would not be captured. This doesn't mean that, for example, occupational health and safety issues, um, this kind of uh, conduct would not be captured. You could view it, as Justice Moldaver did, if the indictment were worded differently, or the theory of the Crown were different. That is to say that the injection is an assault causing bodily harm. Mr. Marchand, I come from a province where 14-year-olds can drive. Yes, right, exactly. I think it's that's my province too, Saskatchewan. Oh, yours too? Yeah. Okay. I think it's daft. I really do. Yeah. Um, so how does this fit into your argument? So if you have that situation where you've got a 14-year-old who drives, it's a dangerous driving case, let's say. The question is whether it's a marked departure. That person's licensed. Somebody else in another province is not licensed at 14. And let's say that person's charged. To me, the provincial differential doesn't determine, uh, in my respectful submission, the unlawful act. It ought to be an unlawful act under, the, uh, under a federal statute. What's unlawful about it? Well, he, conduct, he drove his car in a dangerous manner. But that goes to the, what you're doing is you're fusing objective dangerousness into the unlawful act is what well, it seems to me. It, and you're, and you're putting aside the violence you're doing to federalism. Right. Um, <laughs> well, no, actually, I'm trying to say I want, I, want, I want it to be uniform across the country. So putting aside the violence you want to do to federalism. <laughs> Spoken as an Albertan. Uh, <laughs> But I have an open mind on it. Yes, I understand. Um, <laughs> but it seems to me that you're putting that aside. You're, you're, you're fusing unlawful act with objective dangerousness, are you not? You're changing the test. Well, um, it seems to me that the act of driving and hitting a pedestrian, if you drive in, let's say, a negligent fashion, let's not put it at marked departure. Let's say you drive in a negligent fashion. And you're licensed. So we're talking about we're talking about criminal causing death. Correct. Not 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 unlawful act. That's right. Okay. Right. So this kind of conduct sits more comfortably in a criminal negligence environment than an unlawful act manslaughter environment. So what you're saying is, unlawful, no un unlawful act manslaughter, the unlawful act can't be a provincially regulated. Correct. Offense. I say cannot be. Cannot be. I say that the breach of duty 
And you know this from Section 217 of the Criminal Code, which, which, which imposes a duty on people. You can rely upon 217 to find a breach of duty. The particulars of the breach of duty, to Justice Moldaver's point earlier, or maybe Justice Rowe's point earlier, was what was the duty? It was a provincial duty. Did he, was it a marked departure from that duty? And that's all part of the reasonable steps that get taken. That's all part of whether or not the prosecution can prove marked departure, whether the defense can establish, I did everything I could. But that sits more comfortably doctrinally in criminal negligence and in very, various penal negligence offenses than it does, than it does in unlawful act manslaughter. There, there's no gap here. All no right. one's going to walk away free. I would ask you free. to conclude, please. Yes, sorry. No one's going to walk away free. So to conclude then, finally, I just want to say this for unlawful act manslaughter. An unlawful act manslaughter in Saskatchewan ought to be an unlawful act manslaughter everywhere. Like in one province, every province. Duty questions are much better dealt with in the criminal negligence sphere, the penal negligence sphere. That's where it sits more comfortably. All right, thank, thank you, Chief you. Justice. Chief Justice and Justices, the intervention of the Association des Avocats de la Défense de Montréal is looking at the issue of training experience and the ability to exercise an activity relative to the crime of negligence. The standard of care does not change according to the person but depends on the type of activity. For certain activities, few qualifications are required in order to obtain the necessary permit, but sometimes specialized activities will require further study and sufficient training. When we talk about penal negligence being put forward relative to those activities, it's necessary to establish the standard of care that should have been respected by a reasonable person carrying out that activity. The evidence has been presented in the case at bar, and I will refer to some of those that you'll find at tab one of our condensed book, paragraphs 102 to 129 of the trial judge decision. So this issue of the standard of care that is applicable is distinct from the marked departure from that standard. The standard, the marked departure must be looked at in the area of actus reus. So first of all, you have to establish the standard, and I think that's part of actus reus, and then we see the departure, which is the mens rea. And at tab two, we've reproduced a paragraph six of the BD case where it says that the behavior going against the standard established the actus reus of the offense. And so we have to establish what the norm is. As the Stephen case says in 218 RCS 631 that you find at tab three, one should not uh, amalgamate uh, the actus reus with mens rea. And at tab four, we've also reproduced as 
paragraphs 222, 220, 229, 230, and 244 and 265 of the opinion of uh, the uh, Court of Appeal that was uh, maintained or sustained by your court. This part of Actus Reis uh, indicates that one should go against uh, the norm or the standard at this stage. We're not talking about the departure. If there is a no violation of the standard, then the question of departure does not apply. When uh, the Crown puts forward evidence to the fact uh, that uh, this, uh, the appellant does not have uh, the permit uh, for that type of activity, well, then that uh, could uh, attack uh, uh, the uh, competency of uh, uh, the accused and has nothing to do uh, with their character. The fact of not having a pa permit is re relevant relative uh, to the actus reus, and so the appellant should be able to put forward evidence uh, to uh, go against uh, these accusations of incompetence to indicate uh, that they have the minimum required competencies uh, to carry out uh, that activity. The Beattie and Roy which were appealed before this court, would they have been acquitted if it had been proven that they were driving for the first time in their life without a permit? I doubt it. And so implicitly, we were recognizing those two cases that the accused had the uh, competencies to uh, drive their car, even if uh, they had violated the idea of a, a reasonable uh, driver taking reasonable care in driving. And so uh, the link between actus reus and mens rea would allow for the avoiding of certain problems. So when uh, the Crown refers uh, to the fact uh, that there is a lack of permit uh, or, or not having a permit when we're talking about criminal negligence, uh, well then the appellant must indicate that they have the minimal standards uh, of competency to uh, carry out uh, their activity and in that way their right to a fair trial is protected. Secondly, the issue of a standard application of criminal law uh, throughout Canada is uh, also absorbed by this question of criminal negligence, uh, such uh, that uh, the person didn't have uh, the uh, provincial requirements or permit, but uh, one could put forward its competencies or qualifications. For instance, a doctor in Ontario exercising in Quebec could uh, indicate uh, that they have uh, the competencies relative uh, to uh, the standard or the ability to attain that standard. Alternate, alternately, I would refer you to paragraph uh, 22 and 23 of our factum as uh, to the issue of uh, training, experience, uh, and abilities relative uh, to uh, the mens rea. Thank you for uh, your attention. I hope uh, that this intervention will be useful in your deliberations. Thank you very much. The court will take its uh, morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Mr. Jari. Mr. 
some of the naturopaths association involved in this case are concerned about their members and the effect of the fact that the Court of Appeal decision may stand. I think that's unfounded. I don't think it's about naturopaths in general or doctors of naturopathy. It's about one particular naturopath who had a practice that she knew was unlawful. She never stopped to think about the consequences on her patients and specifically she had an absolutely inadequate reaction to one patient when these problems materialized. Mr. Jarry, you say she was essentially obstinate in acting uh, inadequately. Is that with evidence? She knew she was not entitled. And we know that she did this thousands of times. Mr. Jarry, on all of the elements you've just mentioned, the trial judge decided otherwise. These are questions of fact, aren't they? On the elements you've just mentioned, she recognized that she knew that the practice was illegal. She recognized she did, yes, but on the other elements, this was raised by the appellant. A number of errors are alleged by the trial judge that are either errors of fact or, in your best case scenario, mixed fact and law. We know that the acquittals were overturned. The Crown doesn't even have a right of appeal on this. What do you have to say to that? What I would say to that is this. The factual main fact before the trial judge was about the cause of death. There were two diverging views. The trial judge was convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that it wasn't heart failure that Mr. Matern had that caused the death, but rather the injection, the contaminated injection, yes, that the appellant was not entitled to administer to Mr. Matern. That fact-based debate was uh, to the Crown's advantage. The other issues as to whether that was objectively dangerous and as to whether it was a marked departure from the standard, that's a legal perspective that the trial judge had on the fact and that the Court of Appeal also had and that legal value judgment in a way in law the Court of Appeal was not in a worse position than the trial judge to to engage in. The trial judge did a great job in uh, determining facts in the case of this trial she determined the credibility of all of the witnesses she recognized that the appellant had credibility. We're not denying it. There's credibility to Dr. Marchand, who is an important crown witness. She, she didn't, uh, with respect to Dr. Sauvageau, who uh, supported uh, one particular thesis as to death. Once all of this sorting was done by the trial judge, and when she came to the findings of fact, <clears throat> when we knew, that when she determined what had happened on that basis, the Court of Appeal, respectfully I would submit, was in just as good a position as the judge to determine whether it was an objectively dangerous act and also whether it was a marked and substantial departure. I'll give you a hypothetical. Let's 
take assault causing bodily harm, something that happens in a bar, many witnesses are there. Some claim that it is the accused punched the victim and caused the nosebleed. Other people are saying they don't know who punched whom. <clears throat> Some people say they never saw a punch happen. The accused tells us that he didn't punch anyone. He actually just pushed someone and it was a case of legitimate defense. And then medical evidence would show that this individual, this victim, sometimes has nosebleeds for no reason. The trial judge has to deal with all of this evidence, has to uh, determine what is fact and what is not, determine the reliability of each bit of evidence, and would find that in fact it was the accused who punched the victim, that it wasn't legitimate defense, and that it is the punch that caused the nosebleed. After coming to these findings of fact, if the judge said there's, she's not convinced that it is an assault causing bodily harm, it seems to me that if there was an appeal of that acquittal, if the Crown would not have, would not be able to go beyond, then it would make no sense. The judge established the factual framework. It wasn't really challenged other than with respect to the cause of death and based on what she says happened it seems to me that the crown the court of appeal just like she could could have a qualified legal opinion as to what happened furthermore the two main questions were had base have an objective standard basis what is objectively dangerous and a marked departure from the behavior of a reasonable person. The Court of Appeal was in the same position, just as well placed. What is the illegal act? What, what should we consider here? You should look at what the appellant did. One of the interveners is suggesting that we should look at the objective dangerousness of an act by focusing strictly on the legal documents. According to her, we're reading the wording of the offense. It has to always be objectively dangerous. That is contrary to Creighton. We know that Creighton was found guilty of manslaughter and the underlying offense being trafficking. I'll take you to tab two of my condensed book, which is in fact Creighton. Page 14. You find the wording of the offense. At the time, the wording has changed somewhat, but not substantially. In the middle of the page, you see section 4. No person shall traffic in a narcotic or any substance represented or held out by the person to be a narcotic est défini lui-même un peu plus haut à l'article 2. Faire le trafic, c'est le fait de fabriquer, vendre, donner, administrer, transporter, expédier, livrer ou distribuer un stupéfiant ou encore de proposer l'une de ces opérations en dehors du cadre prévu par le présent jour. En combinant les deux articles, ça fait en sorte que si j'avais un sac de farine et que j'offrais de le vendre à quelqu'un en lui disant que c'est de la cocaïne, Je serais coupable de trafic de stupéfiants. 
même si aucun stupéfiant n'est véritablement en cause, et même si le, la substance oui. ne change même pas de main. Parce que le texte de loi dit euh, soit une substance que le trafiquant exact. prétend, prétend ou estime est telle. Est Alors ça. ici, c'est assez clair que… Alors, et personne ne prétendrait, je pense, que d'offrir de vendre la farine en prétendant que c'est de la cocaïne, c'est objectivement dangereux. Si ce l'était dans Creighton, objectivement dangereux, c'est parce que, un, la façon de trafiquer était d'administrer, donc d'injecter, et deux, parce que c'était véritablement de la cocaïne. Et, et ce que je vous dis là, ça ressort de la page 34, au dernier paragraphe. On sait que la, la, la Cour était unanime a décidé que Creighton avait, à bon droit, été déclaré coupable. Là, je suis dans les, euh, les motifs du juge Lamère, qu'on sait être dissident sur certaines questions, mais pas sur le fond de l'affaire, sur le bien fondé de la déclaration de culpabilité. Et au dernier paragraphe, il, il examine la décision rendue au procès, et donc le fondement du verdict. Il dit « Étant donné la létalité du stupéfiant en question, et vu la façon dont il a été administré, et la connaissance qu'il avait l'accusé de ce stupéfiant et de ses propriétés dangereuses, le juge du procès a conclu que l'accusé avait prévu le risque de mort ou de lésions corporelles graves que présentait l'injection de cocaïne. Alors, ce n'est pas vrai que dans tous les cas, un trafic de stupéfiants est objectivement dangereux. S'il l'était dans Creighton, c'est à cause de la conduite qu'a Creighton, qu eu Creighton d'injecter à son ami la drogue en question. Alors, quand, et je suis d'accord avec M. Juge Rowe qui est intervenu à quelques reprises, il faut d'abord regarder ce que la personne a fait, ensuite se demander si dans les circonstances c'était illégal, et il y a ensuite une troisième étape, il faut se demander si, en fait il y en a deux autres, si c'était objectivement dangereux, et si, ce faisant, l'accusé la, 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 a eu un comportement qui s'écarte de façon marquée de celui d'une personne raisonnable. Alors, il est faux de prétendre, comme notamment une intervenante le fait, de dire que la plante ou quelconque naturopathe ou quiconque pourrait être déclaré coupable sans une conduite objectivement dangereuse et sans une conduite grossièrement négligente de leur part. Vous regardez ce que la plante a fait. Alors, qu'est-ce que la plante a fait, selon vous, qui rend sa conduite objectivement dangereuse. Est-ce que c'est... That the conduct was objectively dangerous. Does that mean there was no license to act as a medical doctor? It was an injection. And it was stated in the respondent's factum. She could have been practicing medicine illegally With doing something other than an injection without it being objectively dangerous. There are cases of charlatans in jurisprudence that claim that they can heal individuals in far-fetched ways by the laying of hands. That's not objectively dangerous. It probably won't do anything to the patient's condition. But that individual is not subject to any risk contrary to the injection. The Canadian Association of Naturopathic Doctors says something we're not fundamentally in disagreement with, that in order to assess the dangerousness of an act, you can look at regulations that vary from one province to the next. So what about intravenous injections? 
performed by naturopaths. In some provinces, in Quebec, they're completely prohibited. In the provinces that authorize injections by naturopaths, there is a framework to it. They're circumscribed. Why is that? The answer is simple. It is because the injections are dangerous. It would not be necessary to regulate this type of medical act if it was not a danger to the patient. It could not be a danger to the patient. I'm not asking you to take my word for it. I'm not the one saying it, in fact. It is one of the organizations that is a regulatory body for naturopaths and regulates the administration of injections, tab three of my condensed book. Administering an injection, is that always objectively dangerous regardless of who is doing it? Yes. Let's say you have an mm, Ontario medical doctor goes to Quebec and does so without a license in Quebec. It's still objectively dangerous. The risk may be lessened in some circumstances. If it's done in a hospital because of a lack of license, it's objectively dangerous. No, it's illegal because of a lack of, but it remains objectively dangerous. It's always, the individual can do it in Justice Brown's example. It's an individual who's a medical doctor who is going, um, let's say, crossing the border to Gatineau. Let's say uh, from over here, I could take a short walk to go to the other side of the bridge and it's still objectively dangerous. Well, yes, the evidence says that Mr. Matern was attending the Cardiology Institute of Montreal. They're fully trained to do this in an ideal setting to do so. There can still be toxic shock. And what they do in that case, they quickly dispatch the patient to intensive care to solve the problem. They don't send the patient home to eat drink smoothies. Go ahead. You complaining about the fact that she had no permit, or the fact that the injection is objectively dangerous, or the fact that there is a lack of follow-up when the appellant noted these problems, all three. The fact that she was not authorized establishes the illegality of it. The fact that it was one inje an injection versus another type of treatment, that l establishes a level of dangerousness and the way in which she did it, including the completely inadequate follow-up, that is the marked departure. All of these elements had to be established to justify a finding of guilt. Why should we set aside the trier of facts findings that determined that the way in which the injection was done was not a problem and that found that the follow-up in the circumstances was adequate? I did not see a finding that the follow-up in the circumstances was adequate. In fact, I would share the view of Justice Rowe. When she said that she had the qualification to administer an injection from the time at which it is prepared to the time at which the catheter or the needle is pulled out of Mr. Mattern's arm. The reaction of the appellant to the patient's reaction, that required medical training, which she did not have in order to adequately respond. That's a first step towards negligence or a marked departure. Even without that training or that skill, she should have called upon specialized services. 
my friend was saying Mr. Mattern did not want to go to the hospital. So be it. But the refusal to go to the hospital in this case is the refusal of an individual who wasn't even in a position to get dressed after going to the washroom, who was completely confused, who couldn't speak anymore. It's not that his refusal was perhaps the most informed. Two quotes and two questions. First quote, the trial judge, paragraph 448. It is plausible that the injection administered by Mitra Javanmardi, given all of the circumstances, did not involve a danger or risk of harm, end quote. Second quote, the grounds, actually the reasons from this, the Court of Appeal decision, paragraph 93, the injection, the intravenous injection is for any human being inherently dangerous, specifically with respect to an infection potentially caused by the introduction of microbes and bacteria within the organism, end quote. The first question, would it be acceptable for the Court of Appeal to substitute Uh, view of the facts. It seems that there's a contradiction between these two views. Is it possible for the Court of Appeal to substitute the facts that have been determined by the trial judge? And second question is this. Is that the key, the is, is the Crichton interpretation the key here? Because the Court of Appeals states that objectively there is always going to be an inherent danger. The trial judge, however, said in these circumstances it was not a dangerous act. Is that the real key to uh, the interpretation in Crichton? We know that in Crichton, four out of nine judges and the other five did not uh, counter that finding. Justice Lamer says the qualification of an act as being objectively dangerous or not is a question of law, first off. Second, here we know, and the trial judge has told us, that she accepted the testimony of a number of witnesses, including Dr. Marchand, who was the main expert witness on the Crown side, she said uh, she accepted that. She welcomed that testimony. Uh, I don't have that before me, but yes. And he explained in, at great lengths what an intravenous injection is and in what way it is dangerous. So when we appeared before the Court of Appeal, and we're saying the same thing to you today, we said the trial judge accepted that testimony. And it was up to her to determine the legal consequences of this. From a legal standpoint, I think, a court, and I would urge you to draw that same conclusion, must find, based on accepted, uncontroverted evidence, that 
establishes what you've just mentioned that the injection an injection always involves a risk of introducing into the human organism some kind of bacteria or microbe not just anywhere in the human body but within the blood thereby bypassing all immune immune mechanisms that are in place let's assume it is objectively dangerous to inject something into someone and that that is the reason why we ask that people have skills to do so but in this instance when i read read the trial court judge's ruling i say yes but she seems to implicitly recognize there is some danger but she says the danger the risk was in exist did not exist because madam had training she had taken courses a thousand three hundred hours worth of courses the trial judge seems to be saying if there is a danger inherent in in this and if this danger did not exist, and these are the circumstances I'm taking into uh, consideration, I'm, of course I'm summarizing here, given her skills, given the fact that she's followed courses, taken courses and had received specific courses on injections, she knew what the measures were required for asepsis, in those circumstances she found that it was not objectively dangerous to administer the injection. That's after she had told us tw several times that the test that she was applying was the objective foreseeability of the risk of death. That was in the facts. She did not apply it, though. That is the position of the appellant. It was said twice. It was repeated in two instances after the conclusion that the Chief Justice with the appellant had looked at this during the testimony. She can't... She, there was a greater tolerance of risk if you if you allow for addictive foreseeability of the risk of death, which is an inadequate standard, all of this taints the ruling. This ruling is tainted by at least this error in law, which is clear. The Court of Appeal found others that I, I'm in agreement with. But it seems to me that this is a flawed verdict from a legal standpoint. We are not criticizing the analysis of the evidence that she did, which was presented over 41 days. It's a colossal endeavor. But as to some slippage by the trial court judge, in which the Court of Appeals said was the with respect to this qualification issue, on the issue of manslaughter, could the Court of Appeal had simply sent the case back for a new trial? The court could have. At that point, it's really an issue of discretion. Correcting errors of law based on the facts accepted by the trial judge, that could have been the ordering of a new trial. Yes, that in fact was the case on the, uh, on the negligence issue. With respect to the homicide issue, it seems to me that the Court of Appeal had before it all of the f necessary findings of fact to make a decision in law on the conduct of the appellant and the substitution of a verdict was the best approach. Even if it were the best approach, yes, to some degree, there could have been the ordering of a new trial. Now to get back to the level of dangerousness, I was going to say earlier that one of the interveners says that it's important to take into consideration provincial regulation, and I draw your attention to tab three of my condensed book. The, 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 the guide des bonnes pratiques. A guide of best practices for the regulatory authority 
in Ontario for naturopaths. Page three, you have an entire list of precautions and procedures that need to be applied when one engages in parenteral therapy. This is some administering other than through the digestive uh, tract. And when you look at page three, you see parenteral therapy poses significant risk for patients for all patients. And the third sentence, due to their risk of contracting infection or having their condition exacerbated. Donc c'est encore plus dangereux, plus risqué pour patients. So it's even more dangerous, more risky for high-risk patients. And who are these patients? You have a list of them, and the second last line of the paragraphs mentions severely debilitated or weakened patients. And I would suggest to you that Mr. Matern falls within this category of a high-risk patient. So not only is an injection always objectively dangerous, it is all the more so when a patient is described in such terms. On the issue of the marked departure, given that we're still in this, we're looking at this document, after this particular paragraph we've just read, there's a, a number, the number of procedures, and the second to last is this one. When an, a naturopath administers an injection, he, he must, after each procedure, do not release the patient until they are safely capable of leaving on their own. We knew Mr. Matern needed the assistant, not just one, nor two, not even three people, but four people just to leave the appellant's clinic and get back into his car. Sitting on a an office chair with wheels because he was no longer able, he was non-responsive. When you talk about a marked departure, I think in this case, this is evidence to support it. Another argument support, uh, mentioned by a number of the interveners here is that it should not be allowed, one should not be allowed to raise the provincial provisions because they vary from one province to the next. The Criminal Lawyers Association makes that argument and has produced a factum that is rather complete on the matter, but fails to raise one decision, which to us is the most persuasive. It's in Fournier. It's from a superior court a decision at the second level following a certiorari after preliminary inquiry. It was a decision that examined the situation in great depth. The argument raised is at tab five of our condensed book. The argument essentially is the same as that of the intervener in this case, and it is summarized at pa paragraph 45, page 10 of the ruling, where the judge raises the defense's argument. According to the accused, such an interpretation of section 2225A of the criminal code goes against the legislator's intent, fundamental rights guaranteed by the charter, the principles of fundamental justice, as well as the essence of criminal law. 
Justice Cournoyer, in response to the argument, turns to case law, paragraphs 48 and following. Note that in D'Souza, the court had already decided on this and then mentions Crichton, paragraph 60, in a case that I'm going to try to pronounce properly, Steinmeiler, where the argument was rejected that uh, a provincial, that there, there could, this could be, that there could be an underlying offense to manslaughter and then turning to doctrine. I'd like us to look at uh, two citations here. Paragraph 63, he refers to an author, two authors actually, Boyle and Grant. And page 16, the authors that Justice Colnoyer agreed with tell us why this has to be the case. Third paragraph, page 16. This will have the effect of excluding certain types of activity, for instance, the maintenance of dangerous working conditions from the ambit of unlawful act manslaughter. Et plus bas, should il pose a question. Should a corporation which has shown a marked departure from the standard of reasonable corporation by breaching provincial statutes be guilty of manslaughter where bodily harm was foreseeable and deaths occurred? Il répond la question. We are of the view that the answer should be yes, at least where provincial offenses are designed to protect lives and safety, such as workplace legislation, et je vous suggérerais, such as medical legislation. Ce que j'ai compris là-dessus, c'est peut-être un petit peu plus nuancé. I think I have a slightly more nuanced view than your colleagues do. My understanding of the argument is that the judge was right, or you are right, to consider that in other Canadian provinces these types of activities or acts are legal in such a way that that evidence can be used to find that this particular act is dangerous or adds to the level of dangerousness. Now, even where it is legal, it is not completely free and unregulated. Well, this is a hypothetical question or a hypothetical example. Assuming that there's an anesthesiologist, a very good anesthesiologist, and uh, there's a patient that arrives at the hospital in emergency, and the anesthesiologist knows that uh, he hasn't paid his dues uh, for uh, having his license, uh, but uh, the anesthesiologist has to inject the person to uh, put the person asleep. The patient has a septic shock, and uh, sometimes that can happen, that somebody does have uh, that type of shock, and the person dies. Does that mean that that anesthesiologist is subject to uh, a charge of manslaughter? In your case, uh, well, we'd have to look at uh, how that person departed from uh, the situation, but in fact, you've uh, assessed that the uh, anesthesiologist uh, was a good anesthesiologist, uh, uh, had the skills necessary, applied the necessary uh, uh, abilities. So, uh, what makes you think uh, that uh, they should be subject to, uh, to uh, that uh, offense? Well, look. If uh, one was uh, looking at the way that uh, the anesthesiologist used uh, the injection from a unidose only once or should have or had uh, done that three times, that's the difference. But look, if uh, there is an evidence uh, from people at the hospital saying that this is uh, common, that uh, people do use uh, the uh, unidose of 
a vial three times, yes, but oh, you have to look at uh, the uh, more aggressive uh, means that that might have been used in the case of an infection, for instance. And I would like to say that uh, this is a practice that is uh, carried out, but it's not something that it's encouraged. One wants to uh, save money, and that's probably the uh, appellant's concern in that regard, but that's not something that should be encouraged just because it takes place. With the few minutes uh, that uh, are remaining, I'd like uh, to deal with the subject that seems uh, to concern the court, that is how one uh, defend, describes a reasonable person. It seems to me that Creighton and Beattie answer the question, and we shouldn't be uh, worried about uh, personal characteristics other than uh, the ability of uh, the accused uh, to recognize uh, the risk or a reasonable person to recognize the risk. It seems that in certain decisions, one is referring to the reasonable police officer or a reasonable parent in the case of Stefan, a decision that was brought down by this court last year. If the court were tempted to decide that, that one should particularize or personalize a person to a certain extent, then one has to, to look at the wording of the offense. For instance, if uh, the offense is such uh, that one omitted to, to provide the necessary requirements for the, ensuring the life of a child at uh, Section 226 of uh, the uh, Criminal Code, for instance. Well, look, for instance, what if I uh, were stung by a, a bee well, yes, uh, what would happen if you did nothing in that regard, if you were nearby? Well, in this uh, case, when we're talking about the conduct of an accused, why are we talking about it in the case of a reasonable parent? Because uh, the necessary offense can only be carried out uh, by a parent or a guardian or somebody who has somebody, a child under their care. And so as a result, it uh, might be unreasonable uh, to compare uh, the conduct of the accused as that of a parent who is acting reasonably. But when we're talking about a parent who's acting reasonably, where one can't go is uh, to say that a reasonable parent is either a, a young a woman who's had a child for the first time compared to a woman who's in her 30s and had six children, or a person who has uh, followed all prenatal courses, or a parent who has read all the literature as to how uh, to raise children and have read all of that literature relating to uh, how pediatrics, well, that's a, a, a medical area, but 
rather how to take care of a child relative to a parent who hadn't read any of uh, that literature. And in so doing, one would create a lot of uncertainty because in each case, one wouldn't know to whom we should compare the conduct of the accused and to what extent of the personalization of that, uh, of the reasonable person, should be the same as that of a reasonable parent in the example that I provided. So as I said, there are certain exemptions for certain people. For instance, a police officer who's uh, charged with dangerous driving. We know that in the majority of provinces, if not all provinces, the law is set out to exclude police officers of uh, having uh, to follow uh, the different uh, uh, signs on the highway and signage on the highway because uh, they might be having to uh, speed in order to respond to an emergency by not stopping at various stops, uh, by not indicating that they were turning left or going left where they weren't entitled to do. But we recognize that, that this is the behavior of a reasonable police officer in similar circumstances because the police officer is allowed to do what the average person is not entitled to do. And uh, for instance, if you have a regular driver for whom uh, they are accused of uh, the same uh, infractions, well, one would say uh, that they are not entitled to act in that way like a police officer might be entitled to do in the context of uh, the reasonable conduct of a police officer. So one has uh, to look at uh, this in terms of uh, the exemptions uh, that uh, the legislator has created for those categories of persons. And if uh, one looks at this in the case before us, one has uh, to look at uh, the appellant's conduct relative to a reasonable person, and that person is not a doctor, and so they did something uh, that a, in an illegal fashion. And so for all of these reasons, I would ask uh, this court uh, to dismiss uh, this appeal. Thank you very much. Mr. Bernard. Mr. Bernard. Juge, sur la question constitutionnelle, les prétentions de la plante semblent. As far as the constitutional issues are concerned, it seems that we're not looking at the issue of the division of powers in the federal context, whereby there are distinctions between the various provinces. That is the fundamental essence of our country. The appellant is saying that if an act is done unlawfully by a naturopath, as in the case at Bar, and it is legal in another a province whereby that act would have been regulated, well then unlawfulness cannot have been invoked in the context of manslaughter. So the illegal act stemming from the provincial offense, which is a predicate offense to the criminal code, cannot be invoked relative to an unlawful act only after having done an analysis of all of the provincial jurisprudence, whereby assessing that it was illegal in all provinces. But uh, if uh, a province uh, decides uh, to establish a certain framework for that activity, uh, the uh, predicate uh, illegal offense of uh, the criminal code in other uh, provinces, well, that uh, would uh, prevent uh, the uh, 
charges or criminal charges in the other provinces. So this uh, creates problems throughout the country. And it would also seem that a federal law does not apply in the same way throughout the country. That is uh, the appellant's uh, submission. But this court has recognized that, that a federal act does not have to apply in a uniform basis to all provinces. The different application of a law is not uh, uh, does not go against uh, section 15 i would refer you to r versus ssr v uh, turpin that uh, specifically dealt with uh, a criminal law furthermore your court in D'Souza recognized uh, that the predicate offense uh, to a criminal code offense that uh, can also uh, be an offense of a provincial or federal law and thereby recognizes uh, that the application of the uh, criminal code is not the same throughout and can differ. This uh, court also recognized in RVSS uh, that the diversity of application of criminal law is a way of promoting uh, the values of federalism. So this court has not seen that there is a constitutional difficulty here. The differences that exist between provinces do not constitute a violation of the Charter. A, char a law is not invalid because it establishes distinctions. What is important to analyze under Section 15 is a rather different. And you refer to this in the case of Centrale des Syndicats du Québec last year, where it was said that the analysis must be done in two stages. First of all, to analyze whether the provision is based on a enumerated or analogous ground. And if that's the case, then one proceeds to the second phase. And we don't believe that we have to carry out that exercise because the first stage has not been met. If one looks at the case before you, is there a distinction based on enumerated or analogous grounds? There is a no such situation relative to Section 15. When we look at analogous grounds, the appellant is talking about the place of residence and the occupation of a naturopath. The court said that a Analogous ground is a personal characteristic that uh, cannot be uh, changed or can be um, modified at an unacceptable cost relative to the identity of the person. So uh, these uh, personal characteristics that cannot be changed and do not leave any choice uh, to the individual, so it is what the uh, individual is and not what the individual does. So in that case, your court, unsurprisingly, has refused to recognize that the place of residence as being an analogous ground. And I would refer you to the decision in Simons, Aigle, RVSS, and RV Turpin. And more recently, uh, the uh, Court of Quebec uh, in uh, Family Law, Section 139, was looking at the, the various uh, uh, benefits for children that would be provided and drew the same conclusions. And so an appeal before it was dismissed. So there is no evidence uh, put forward by the appellant that allows us to draw a different conclusion in this case. And uh, therefore, residence is not an analogous ground question, but it's not just merely a question of residency. When one reads what Justice McLaughlin said in Creighton, 
she said that uh, the uh, applicable standard can vary according to uh, the activity. And so when uh, the activity is that of naturopathy, is that relevant as to what is done in other provinces or throughout the country with naturopaths? Answer. Well, what is done in terms of the analysis of the analogous ground, I submit that one really has to look as to the person, that is, whether it is something that is intrinsically impossible for a person to do something else. There's no evidence to that effect here. And so the description of analogous ground it talks about uh, the fundamental aspects of an individual. And uh, here we're talking about what this person is doing, and that is being a naturopath. So when one looks at the analysis, analogous ground, the occupation of being a naturopath or naturopathic professional, well, that does not uh, describe that person in the context of analogous ground, as is the case for belonging to other professions, whether it be in Delille or Bayer, other decisions of this court. It's never been considered an analogous ground, and there's no evidence that indicates that, that your court should draw a different finding. And the distinctions that are referred to here stem from a legislative exercise that was undertaken by the province of Quebec and that falls under its jurisdiction. It's a valid exercise, and so it cannot be used as a grounds for discrimination. The act was legitimately passed, and it's never been challenged, and so it is cannot be said to creating a grounds for discrimination under Section 15. So all the arguments that are put forward relating to Section 15, well, we believe that those arguments put forward by the appellant should be dismissed. The appellant has also referred to Section 6, that is a violation of the freedom of movement and the ability to earn one living, and we would submit that uh, the appellant has been able to earn a living in Quebec for 20 years and cannot invoke uh, this provision to avoid her uh, criminal liability. Section 6 says that the rights that are guaranteed are subordinate to, to uh, the applicable law in the province. And all recognize that the government of Quebec had a jurisdiction to legislate relative uh, to IV injections by exercising its uh, discretion relative to other professions. That act has not been challenged. And I would say that uh, the fact that, that the injection is an illegal act in Quebec is not something that has been challenged here. And so the appellant must submit to herself a to Quebec law as any naturopath who's exercising naturopathy in Quebec must do. So as regards Section 6, I would submit that the, the arguments made by the appellant should be dismissed. Unless you have any other questions, this brings an end to my submissions. One very quick question. Does one see the injection 
as being the activity or is it considered to be an, an illegal injection? Answer, I don't think that it's a constitutional issue and I would refer to my colleague in that regard, but when one looks at what must be looked at, we have to look at the act per se as it's carried out. And whether one is in one province or another, the uh, characteristics of the offense will always be the same. One will always uh, look whether it's a provincial offense or a federal offense. One will see or whether it is objectively dangerous and whether it's constitutionally valid and whether there is no absolute liability. So the criteria will be the same and we're going to see whether this is objectively dangerous, whether it be a provincial or federal activity. Thank you very much. Reply, Ms. Sherman. Thank you. Um, concerning uh, Mr. Jerry's representations about the factual context of the departure from the clinic. This was vigorously contested uh, at trial. And what the trial judge found has to be looked at in the context of paragraph 343, which I don't believe is in the, uh, is in the uh, book you received this morning, but that is the paragraph where she says that she finds Mitra Javanmarty credible. So it's paragraph 343 and paragraph 449. In paragraph 449, she says, Mitra Javanmardi a les compétences requises pour administrer. Mitra Javanmardi has uh, the necessary skills uh, to administer the injection, and at each uh, stage, she took the necessary precautions, but she's not authorized by the law. ...from the clinic must be looked at through the prism of those two paragraphs is because in paragraphs... Two, she speaks in the evidence of Mitra Javanmardi about this departure, and then she doesn't speak of it again. So we know from her judgment that she retained what was stated by Mitra Javanmardi, and you have it in uh, tab two of the book you received this morning. And you have paragraph 258. As she does it generally, as she prepares a section, uh, form D9 in the intravenous room. Venus. Paragraph 259, she takes the vitals again after the intravenous. Paragraph 270, Roger Matin became very tired and uh, said that this uh, fatigue had uh, taken place at another occasion and repeats that he won't go to the hospital. And he seems to be looking better. So, not the picture Maître Jerry put before you. This was vigorously contested, and this is what the trial judge put in her judgment. And 272, Maître Javanmardi took the vital signs of Roger Matern before he left. Taking the vital signs again. La pression est 110 sur His uh, pressure is 110 over 76. Roger Martin has a good... Uh, uh, is a good look and is speaking well. And uh, Mr. Javan noted that Roger Martin was not walking. The day was tiring for him. He's not eating, and this is relating to his weakness from his disease. It was, it was, it was not what the, what the trial judge says here, selon Mitra Javan Marzi, 
Roger Matern. According to According to Mitra Jabin Mardi, uh, Roger Matern is leaving with his walker and not on a, uh, a chair with the uh, rollers. The context of her comments at paragraph 243 and 449 that Mitra Jabin Mardi is credible and was qualified at all uh, stages, this is what should be, um, what should be um, uh, looked at. And Can I, I ask you a question, please, about um, at page 43 of Creighton? Justice McLaughlin, as she then was, said the unlawful act must be objectively dangerous, that is, likely to injure another person. And that's been interpreted as likely to cause injury, i.e. bodily harm. Is there any evidence in this case to show that when someone who is competent to introduce intravenous uh, injections into a person, when you're dealing with competent people who have been trained to do this, that it's more likely than not, there's more than a 50% chance that they're going to injure the other person? There was no such evidence, and the trial judge's conclusion at paragraph 448 not only said that it is plausible that the injection administered by Mitra Javan Mardi, compte tenu de toutes les circonstances. It is plausible that the injection administered by Madame Javan Mardi in light of all the circumstances, did not represent a danger, and uh, the intravenous uh, does not uh, represent something morbid. It uh, might have uh, helped uh, Roger Martin, according to the evidence. Going on in that clinic, we don't have the mens rea of a criminal act here. We have someone practicing a profession, yes, without the license, <laughs> but where she truly but believes she can help this man. Is that in terms of objective dangerousness, I would have thought that when, an, when a person who is competent, this goes on thousands of times across this country every day, I would have thought that if in fact there's a real likelihood that someone is going to get injured when a competent trained person gives intravenous injections, there should be some evidence of that. And, and, and in fact, I would have thought it's infinitesimal the number of times that people are actually injured, i.e. bodily harmed. And, and, there was no, and there was no evidence to show well, that. Is there evidence by Dr. Marchand to the contrary in terms of? And, and no, in fact, I, I think even the nurse Gagné who came with a table of uh, stat, statistics about infections, I think even she came up with a, a, a relatively small number, said it's very rare, and Mitra Javan Mardi had said it's very rare. She knew what this kind of shock was, but it's very rare. Um, might be permitted just one final question, Chief Justice. What you've said about um, the conduct of um, Ms. Javan Marty, is that really about whether this was a dangerous act or was that about the standard of care which she showed? Because I. I, I, the three elements keep flowing into one another, and I'm trying to keep them conceptually distinct. You, you were saying she knows what she's doing, therefore it's not a dangerous act. But what you really seem to be saying to me is that her conduct was not in a marked departure from the standard of a reasonable person, which is the third element of the offense, not the second. The second one is an objective standard, and what you're suggesting to us is that her conduct, which is subjective, is, is, is feeds into the second one. You, you, you've conflated, I, I guess I'm saying, the elements of the offense in a way that uh, I think is very problematic. 
Um, uh, with respect, uh, we believe to have kept them separate, and objective dangerousness is one standard, and it's a decision of fact made by the trial judge. The facts will be conflated. Of course, you're going to look at certain actions, and they'll apply to one test as they'll apply to the other, but the objective dangerousness was decided as a question of fact. The marked departure is something else, and on the marked departure, we maintain that it just it defies common sense that the trial judges should not have access to information that can give them the full, true picture when someone is trying to make a defense. And um, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, in response to a question that you had asked at tab five of our book, you will find our position on why the Court of Appeal should not have, have been even looking at entering a conviction if they believed that they had to intervene. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. I'd like to thank uh, the uh, counsel for their arguments that the court will reserve a judgment. The court is adjourned until tomorrow morning, 9.30.